Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Hi, my name is Bill Hendricks. I'm the Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center. And I want to welcome you to The Table Podcast, where we deal with issues of God and culture. Uh, we often deal with a lot of issues that are current in our uh, daily culture, and uh, particularly the thorniest of those issues. Today, however, we want to get back to what I like to call some basic blocking and tackling relative to the local church. And with us today is Dr. Gary Brandenburg. And Gary, uh, up until September, you were the senior teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church here in town, and then you've transitioned into a new role there that uh, you're called pastor at large, right? Right. And so you're still involved very much with the church, but uh, this new role, what does that allow you to do? Well, it, it, it goes back a ways to where I was passionate about mentoring and uh, working with young up-and-coming uh, pastors. And uh, so that was my intention when I came to Dallas 15 years ago, uh, was to do that to the best of my ability. And then I got to a place where I realized, because of being senior pastor or lead pastor, uh, my time was limited to do that. So I felt like, because of my age, I, I'm 66, or as my four-year-old granddaughter would say, 66 and a half. That's important when you're four, <laughs> right. four and a half. But uh, so I, I realized with my age, and I, while I was still feeling good, I really wanted to devote my attention to the mentoring piece. So I stepped aside and went through a process of succession. Um, and so now I'm still I'm, I'm, I'm out of the way for a little while so that my successor can Kind of Succeed. establish himself. <laughs> yeah, we, that's right. That's how you measure, right? Success by successor. So um, I'm going to be out of the way for a while and then come back on as pastor at large, which was, I'll be on the teaching team, and then I'll be able to do a lot of uh, leadership training, leadership development, that kind Excellent. of thing. Yeah. Well, leadership is the topic that we want to focus in on today, and particularly oftentimes people think of the leader in the church, and they use a singular for that term, the leader is the pastor. And certainly pastors uh, should and often do exercise leadership, but in many churches the real uh, leadership is not by just one person, it's by a group of people, uh, a number of whom are known as elders. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is, is actually a term out of the, the New Testament. And so I'm, I, we'll talk about some of the New Testament passages, but um, as one who's been in a church that's what we call an elder-led church, what does that function mean in an elder-led church? Well, I think, first of all, it's the realization that leadership is plural in the New Testament. I think there's a lot of room. Polity is pretty flexible there in the early years mm -hmm. uh, in the New Testament. But um, I think one thing that we can conclude is that leadership is plural. Peter, for example, 1 Peter 5, calls himself a fellow elder. Hmm. 
So uh, I think what's sad is that, in my experience, I've found that most churches are more familiar with a, a democratic style of government hmm. than they are with a biblical form of government. And by that, I mean the senior pastor is the president, and then he usually has a cabinet, which are his associate pastors. And then there's the Senate, which is the elders, or in a Baptist church, the deacons. Right. Uh, and then there's the House of Representatives, which would be either the deacons or the trustees. And so oftentimes, uh, church polity sort of resembles that rather than what I feel like the Bible uh, presents to us. So, Well, and, um, and in that form of church governance, quite often the congregation itself is like the the electorate. Sure. In other words, they vote somebody in That's right. or out, as That's the case right. may be. Yeah. And then you have various degrees to which they're involved. What can they vote on? Right. And that all has to be determined by every local church. So. Right. But I, I, I feel very strongly that leadership is plural. Uh, I feel like um, in my role as a pastor, uh, I am one of the elders. In fact, I almost always introduce myself. I never stand up and say, I'm Gary Branham, I'm lead pastor of fellowship. I always stand up and say, I'm one of the elders here at fellowship. And I happen to teach. And, and my particular role is the oversight of the church on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm set, a, set, a, set apart for that. Um, there is that principle of first among equals, which mm -hmm. you see, for example, even with James in the New Testament. But um, I just really feel strongly that leadership needs to be plural, and, and that's why we've I've always been involved in a church that operates with elders. And so if you're in that first among equals, the, the, the person who's been responsible for teaching or one of the teachers, what do the other elders do? <laughs> well, that's a good question because I've, <laughs> I've, I've been in a church with three elders. I've been in a church with 20 elders, um, and currently now I'm in a church that has 11 elders. Is that so, partly a function of church size? I think so. It's a function of church size, and, a, and also it is a function of how – what you determine the role of the elders to be, and that has to be negotiated. So for example, where I am right now, it's a policy governance model. The elders really have no day-to-day -day responsibilities other than to oversee the vision of the church, uh, oversee the finances, and oversee, you know, in general, the, the health of the church. But I was at another church which really followed more of a Presbyterian model. We which had, means? Uh, which would mean you would have t ruling elders and teaching elders. Okay. But in this case, it was, a, it was not a Presbyterian church, so what they had was what I would, I guess, refer to as uh, executive elders and shepherding elders. So there were 20 elders. Seven of them were the ones that met more regularly to handle the, the details of the finances and, and the legal matters of the mm -hmm. church. And then you had 13 other elders who, along with those seven, had shepherding responsibilities. So if there was a marriage that was in trouble, one of the elders would be involved in that way. Um, so it, it, it worked well in some ways, but because there were so many elders, it, it, was, it was really a bit heavy, top-heavy, uh, in making sure everybody was on the same page. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that, uh, making sure everybody was on the same page. Um, I will not name names, but I am familiar with a, a, a person who's quite well known in, in uh, church planning circles and, and in uh, uh, church government circles who had planted a church that turned out to be a very successful church, and many churches have been birthed out of that church. But in the early goings, I think at one point, uh, they had like 60 elders. 
And what made it difficult, I mean, aside from 60 elders, that's a lot of voices to be in one room. They tried to operate on what they called the principle of unanimity. In other words, the only way we can move forward is if all 60 elders agree. Yeah, good luck. Well, that meant that oftentimes there were elder meetings meeting until, you know, close to 2 in the morning. And finally, you, you get everybody to agree, but it's because somebody's just like, look, I'm tired, I want to go home, fine, whatever. And they just they cave. It wasn't because they really were, quote, on the same page. So, so is unanimity an ideal that's, that's not an ideal? Well, no, I think it's, a, it's an ideal. It's a good ideal. I mean, you want unanimity as much as that's possible. But um, there, are, there are, as you say, there are a lot of horror stories. I, I was at a church where before I got there, um, there was one particular elder who was oppositional and, and you know, didn't like some decisions that had been made. And he knew that because they had to be unanimous on every decision, he all could, he had to do was vote no and he could hold up everything. Hmm. It was really a tragic situation because they were trying. And now, how do you deal with that? So, I, th- I think um, I think there needs to be a process laid out to where you say, "All right, let's first time through this. Let's see where everybody is." And you know, if we're unanimous, great. If we're not unanimous at our church, what we do is we say, "If we can't be unanimous with eleven people, now if we can't be unanimous, let's." put this on hold and seek the Lord on this. Let's pray about this, and then we'll come back together and we'll continue to um, to work on it. So, you know, if you have – hopefully you've got a decision that's a pretty wise decision that everybody sees the wisdom of it. If not, then uh, you can delay it, but then you – I would – in my case, I would go along to the one – if it's one elder, and I would, I would want to hear. There may be some – some real reasons for why that person's holding out, but um, I, I wouldn't want to move forward until, if he if it was not unanimous, at least that individual would was say, heard. you know, I'm I'm not going to oppose this. So so that you maybe the better principle is one of consensus. Yeah, it is consensus. Yeah, yeah, and, and I don't think you'd ever want to go, you know, in our case, I don't think you want to do something based on a six-five vote. Right. Um, but I do think there should be something laid out that says, you know, I, th- I think ours, honestly, I didn't look it up, but I think ours is, uh, you know, once the decision is made, I think if there's one dissenting vote, the, the, then there can still, we can still move forward. Um, so, but I think, man, you got to work on that because depending on how strongly that person feels, that could, that could be, <laughs> uh, man, that could be radioactive. Well, yeah. And, 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 and this kind of brings us to, who should be elders and and the selection right. and there's two there's two basic core passages in the new testament first timothy 3 and titus 1 and it gives the qualifications for being an elder and when you add them all up this is pretty daunting cuz it it it's 21 it it's probably more than 21 let me just read through this list sure Blameless as a steward of God, above reproach. That sounds like a pretty high bar. Faithful husband to his wife. Temperate, sober, vigilant, sober-minded, prudent, of good behavior, orderly, respectable, given to hospitality, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not pugnacious, which means means ready to pick a fight. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Patient, moderate, forbearing, gentle, 
uncontentious, not soon angry or quick-tempered, not covetous, not a lover of money, rules his own house well, his children are faithful, not accused of rebellion to God, not a novice or a new convert, a new believer, has a good rapport or reputation with what the word is outsiders, which I presume means those who are not part of the church, Mm -hmm. not self-willed, a lover of what is good, just, fair, holy, devout, self-controlled, holds firmly to the faithful message as it has been taught. Where do we find such a person? It's a good question because I, I, I believe strongly in all of those things. Obviously, they're biblical. And then I remember after I had been critical of a lot of churches because I was in seminary at the right. time. And that's what you do when you're in seminary because, you know, you, you know everything. You know everything. So I was, and then I, and then God pulled a trick on me and I planted a church. <laughs> <laughs> and in the process of that, Church planting effort. I had to. I had to find leaders, hmm. and I had to find elders. So what'd you do? And so, well, what I did was I. I I'm thankful. It was a very good process for me because I went to the scriptures and I said, okay, what, what are the requirements? First Timothy and Titus, the ones that you're referring to, to me is just one of what I came up with four qualities, hmm. uh, four characteristics, and that is just the character qualities. So I would see those that list as a list of character qualities. Now, like you say. It still doesn't easily settle it because if it says have your children under control, how under control do your children have to be? And if you have three children, do all of them have to be under? Or is two out of three good enough? Right. So there are a lot of subjective standards there that that I think the principle, and you see it in Act Six. The principle was who do you choose um, to serve in the church? Those who are full of the Spirit and wisdom. Hmm. So I think that goes a long way to help answer some of those questions. But I found character qualities just to be kind of magnetic north on the compass, because there are three other qualifications. One of them you mentioned there that comes up in First Timothy 3, and that's the ability to communicate the gospel. To teach. Yeah, apt to teach. Apt to teach. It's a difficult word. Didacticon, I don't know that it means really skilled at teaching. It means one that is inclined that way, and I think it really, in some ways, might mean uh, one inclined to study the Word of God who wants to share that that learning with others. So I think you have to have someone, and it doesn't mean they have to be able to keep a thousand people spellbound. They, they may not have a gift for teaching. That's right. That's exactly right. But but they know how to communicate the gospel. And frankly, in Titus, it says, and refute those who contradict, right. which is oftentimes just as important. Mm-hmm. But there's that teaching aspect. But then there's also what I call the catalytic component. Um, the word for leadership, oftentimes in the New Testament, is prohistemi, the idea to stand before. It's not to go behind. It's not to stand in the middle and put your finger in the air and say, Where, which way should we go? Or that famous statement, there go my people and I must follow them for I am their leader. <laughs> right. But it's, it's, you know, it's the idea of a person who takes initiative. Hmm. Far too often I find that those that get on the church board, they somehow see themselves as representatives. And, and being a representative is way different than being a leader. Right. So they want to represent all the segments of the – so the, oftentimes they'll bring complaints to the, to the table. That's not how you want to run a church. That's not leadership. So there's that catalytic component that I think is important in the people that you're, that you're looking at and, and trying to decide whether they belong in the elder board. And then the last one would be the compassion or the, or the pastoral aspect. 
Um, does this person really care about people? So we ask four questions. When we're looking at the next possible group of individuals we want to put on the elder board, we say, number one, is this person an example? And that's character. Uh, number two, does this person take the initiative? Or do they just come on a regular basis saying, you know what the church needs to do? I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that. <laughs> but is this somebody that's actually gone out and, and solved the problem? Um, right. So that's the catalytic part. Uh, then the question is, do they care about people? And, you know, I that church plan I was talking about, I had a man on my elder board, wonderful guy. He was an accountant, so we just assumed he'd be great with the numbers. The problem was, you know, once I really got to know him, so we laid hands on him too quickly. Hmm. But once I really got to know him, he just didn't like people. <laughs> he liked numbers, but not he people. He loved numbers. He was good with numbers. He was great with numbers. Not so and much he was with... a servant of God. Right. I mean, he really was. Not but, so much with people. But he would come to church and <laughs> tolerate it and be the first one out the door and go home and pull the curtains because he just was very much an introvert and, and didn't really want to be. Was, you're not saying there's anything wrong with introverts. No, no, per se. no, no. <laughs> but if you're intimidated by people, that's and, probably not a good role for it's you. It's probably not a good role for you. And and then that that last one would be the does can this person communicate the gospel? So in our interviewing with these individuals, we would ask them, tell us tell us how you came to Christ and tell us how you would lead someone else to Christ. Hmm. And see if they can communicate the gospel clearly and competently. So those are the four uh, those are the four qualities we use at, at our church, and I think those serve pretty well. To now, again, a lot of those things are very subjective. You know, how how well do they need to be able to communicate? The, I mean, you can't. There's no there's no hard and fast rule. You can't plug everything into some kind of matrix. But but at least you can uh, you can if you use those four things as your guide. Um, you'll find out pretty well whether this person will serve on the board and do a good job. Well, these sound very different from the qualifications that I too often uh, perceive right. in churches, which are, um, is this person got some money? Uh, does this person have some leadership uh, responsibility where they work? And does this person look like somebody who will be on my side? That's correct. Are they successful? Yeah, and uh, and and not just do they have money, but do they tithe? I mean, some they can have money, but you got to make sure that they're <laughs> they're giving it. Right. <laughs> and 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 frankly, churches I've been at too, I've actually heard the conversation. Well, we we probably need a lawyer on the mm -hmm. board, mm -hmm. so they'll even go by. We probably need an accountant. Uh, I was persuaded to do that when I planted the church. This guy, oh, we need him on the board because he's good with the books. Um, the and the church. Needs good lawyers well, no and good question. accountants. You're saying just not necessarily right. on the board, and they and they may be they good may, board members right. and have those skills, but you don't put them on there just because they have those skills. There are other factors. So That's why those four factors are important. A church is is a different organism than just let's say any other nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah, so I, those are – I think those – and you, you left out a couple other things that oftentimes are considered uh, when considering out. How long have they been at the church? Oh, uh, yes. It's their turn. It's their turn. They've been here all this time. Or, or who are they related to? You know, are they related to big money? And, you know, we want to hold them close. Mm. I mean, I, I just don't – those are – those are bad – they're definitely so. looking at the, ch the the church through the lens of human eyes, not God's eyes. Sure, sure. 
So you mentioned somebody who'd been at the church a long time. Just by virtue of the the word as it's translated, elders, and I actually was interesting. Uh, you know that that term, elders, or at least that that English word as it's translated goes all the way back into the Old Testament and then all the way into the Gospels. And you remember throughout the Gospels it talks about the chief priests and the elders, and these are on the these are the enemies of Jesus. And into the book of Acts and it and it talks about Stephen and how the chief priests and the elders and the other leaders got together and ended up condemning him and he was stoned. And and then there's a shift in Acts eleven where a church gets planted in Antioch and a prophet prophesies there's going to be a famine and it says the church in Antioch collected some money and sent it uh, by Barnabas to the elders down in Jerusalem. And suddenly that word shifts over into use in the church. You. You've, you've noticed that yourself. <laughs> yeah, I have, and it's 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 the <laughs> it's the subject of some debate we've had even on our elder board hmm. because every once in a while one of our elders says, "You know, guys, we're getting long in the tooth. We need to get to some young men on the board." And and I will always say, "Okay, I I understand. I'm sympathetic with the desire. We need to always be cultivating new leadership. However, let's not forget." Regardless of what else you think an elder is, the word itself depicts someone that has some age. And hopefully through that, some yeah. experience, some maturity, they've been tested, well, their character's you know, been tested. With, with age comes wisdom, but hopefully. sometimes age comes all by itself. Right, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know that all too well. Yeah. Yes. But ideally, with age comes a certain degree of life experience and wisdom. So. Uh, I think we've got to be careful. You know, the, it, I understand people are sympathetic and say, "Well, we need somebody on here that's got kids in our children's program, so let's get a 25-year-old." However, I would also say this, Bill, that when you look at the New Testament and you pointed to a good example, the elders in Jerusalem are going to be far more experienced than the elders in Crete. Right. I mean, in Crete, it, because it says, "Don't don't put a novice in the role." Well. I mean, you know, in some situations, you, you, you've got people that just haven't been Christians for very long. Well, and in that particular context, uh, somebody who had been uh, there in Jerusalem and had been raised in the Jewish faith would have had deep background in the Old Testament. Right. And of course, and and not only in the Old Testament, but in Hebrew. Right. Okay. And And so when they are, as you say, you know, able to teach. They, they can they can open the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and teach. Mm -hmm. Imagine somebody who's grown up in Crete and they're in a Greco-Roman world. Yeah. They don't know Hebrew, right? Which probably means they've never read the Old Testament. Yeah, and even what they know is fairly new to them. But so. nonetheless, it says that elders were appointed there, and so much so that in Titus it says that the, the church is not even established until elders. I mean, he says, set right. in order the things, uh, and namely, uh, appoint elders in every city. So, and, and elders is always plural. It doesn't say appoint an elder or, or find a senior pastor. It says appoint elders, plural, in, in every place. So, so if I take it, uh, if, I, if I understand what you're saying correctly, you would tend to, to find your elders among the more elderly the older folks in a congregation, 
hopefully. But that doesn't mean there's no hope for startup churches that, say, have a prominence of millennials. Not at all. Because there's a lot of those now. That's right. They can still have elders. Absolutely. And because that's who that's who they've got in their congregation, right? Um, but so that's why if you use those four characteristics I mentioned, um, you can apply those to anyone. It doesn't matter their age. Is this a person of solid character? Is this a person that has a certain degree of communication ability of the gospel? Hmm. Is this a person that really cares about people and has demonstrated that? Is this a person who takes the initiative and helps solve problems and doesn't just bring them to the church leadership? You can find that in. A lot of young men and women. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I'm glad you said that, because I'm aware that in certainly many large, large churches um, that have been around for a while, you know, the sort of all the leadership spots in terms of elders and, and other leadership roles in the church, they're kind of spoken for. And when young, younger adults come in and they marry and they start to have families, you know, and they're in their 30s, like they look at the positions of leadership and they go, there's no real future for me here unless I hang around for 30 more years. Yeah. And so then that gets discouraging. And of course, if they're in a big city like Dallas, then they end up going to other churches sometimes. But you're saying we need to pay attention to the fact that they are up and coming, and and what what can we do to help them uh, become uh, elders at some point? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the huge uh, issues confronting most churches today. Because I I hear it in conferences and in liter I see it in literature. The whole issue of the leadership pipeline. How, how do you yeah, develop about leadership that. in your church? And I wouldn't say that we've been tremendously successful at that, although uh, I think the key there is that you just keep your eyes open and your ears open for people that demonstrate a certain level of leadership, and then you try to help them. You know this full well. It, it, help them with their giftedness. Mm -hmm. Find out where they're gifted and help them. I, I think where we really struggle as a church is that we get some really gifted people and these are people out there, let's say, for example, they're out there building businesses. Then they come in the church and we hand them a stack of bulletins and have them stand at the door. And <laughs> it's it's right. just it, – and I have never solved this problem, but um, they are they, – it's – there's got to be a way to, to put them to work in meaningful ways. And um, so I think that's the best idea is find out who these – if we're talking about younger people, mm -hmm. um, then find out who they are that show some upside in terms of leadership, and then get to know them. Take them to lunch. Talk to them. Put them in a role. It, it could be leading a, a, a small a home group. group. Right. Uh, it could be teaching a training experience. Uh, it could be leading an initiative that the church is 
you know, going to take them on a missions trip, Mm -hmm. whatever, somehow give them opportunities to where they can lead. And that's that's the issue, is don't ask them to follow your lead all the time without at least giving them something where they can demonstrate their leadership. But most pastors, and I I think this is a weakness in all organizations, we tend to lead down. Hmm. We find it more comfortable to deal with people who are less qualified than we are. Hmm. We don't lead up because we're a little bit threatened by somebody that's actually better at things than I am. So uh, I think that's I think that's really important. Well, I remember years ago, uh, the pastor of Highland Park Presbyterian Church here in Dallas was Clayton Bell, and he preached a sermon once in which I don't have the exact numbers, but they had done some research and they tried to identify all of the particular positions, including volunteer positions, like within the four walls of yeah, a church. Yeah. So. Yeah, you've got your elders and you've got your deacons and the trustees and then you've got your, you know, Sunday school superintendents and then you've got your Sunday school teachers and your nursery school teachers and then you got the, you know, the assistants and you got the administrators and you got the juice, you know, the the people that carry the juice for the kids and all the way down. And if you totaled all those up in a church of his size, it was something like, you know, uh 1,253 of those positions they had identified for the church at that time. Well, the church at that time had something like you know 6,500. Yeah, you don't have enough jobs. It, that's what that was his point. Yeah. He said there's not enough jobs within the church for all the people that are in the church. Right. His only conclusion was that means that for the majority of God's people, we need to arm them for serving God outside the four walls of the church. Well, that obviously means the workplace. It also means what you're describing in terms of home groups, right. in terms of projects out in the community, um, in terms of leadership in the community, but actually seeing those as an extension of the body of Christ right. out in the world. Yeah, and, and that's one of the ways you change a culture. You change a culture by changing the heroes of that culture. Mm-hmm. If the heroes are always the staff of the church, you're never going to change that culture. But it, But if you can make heroes – for example, at our church, I know you've been proactive at your church yeah, to do that. Yeah, one of the finest uh, OBGYNs in, in the city of Dallas uh, goes to our church. And the ministry that that woman has hmm. uh, to the women that walk into her office is un it's, – it's, I, I, my influence pales in comparison um, to the influence that she has in that, in that medical office. Hmm. So you have to celebrate that. So I get her up on the stage. She hates it. I'll bet. But I'll, I'll get a panel of you know five or six people and talk about what they do. And so you, you help people envision what that would be like. One of our most recent elders, um, I've had my eye on him for ten years, and I was so impressed with him. Um, Notre Dame grad, um, went to medical school, but decided he wanted to teach. So he ends up teaching in DISD and um, becomes a very effective teacher in DISD, so much so that they gave him a chance to build a school. It was a whole new concept in schools where he could actually he, – he, they had some competition where put in your idea of what you, you know, would like to see done differently. And he did, and he won. And mm. so now he just started this year a school that's based on giftedness. Excellent. So he's teaching children to find their Gift. giftedness and to exploit their gifts. 
And he's now the principal of that school. And he sounds like somebody I need to do a podcast he, with. <laughs> he, he, I, I totally, I, you'd love doing a podcast with him. We're so proud of him. And I, I just so so celebrated. Him. We celebrated that. And now he's an elder hmm. because he has shown in everything that he's done. Um, he's so got the qualities you're looking for. He's got those qualities. So, you know, you see them, don't just look at what they do in the church. You know, have they poured the communion every month faithfully, which is, you, boy, you better have somebody that can pour the communion faithfully right, every month. Right, right, You need the volunteers. You des- de- definitely need that. And these are people that often have gifts of service or helps, that kind of a thing. Right. Um, but when you see someone like that that's, that's an, an initiator and he's, he's, you know, he's out there solving a problem and uh you say wow there's a characteristic i already knew he was a man of character um i had made fun of him for years just jokingly because he went to notre dame and i remember the first time he and i talked i said wow i said i'll bet that was pretty exciting there on saturdays uh at football (laughs) games and he goes i don't know he says i was in the library every saturday Hmm. (laughs) i said man you've got to be the only guy i've ever known that's been that's in the library during a Notre Dame football game. So um, yeah, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have thought of skipping a football game. <laughs> <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So I think that's part of our job. I think as pastors is is that we really are HR people and we're looking for good human resources. I think when we you know when we stand before God, I've always felt and I've, I say this to my elders sometimes. You know, we always think that you know we're going to have to give an account for. I said, I, you know, whatever accounting there is, I don't think the question is going to be, what did you do with the millions of dollars I gave you? Certainly, we've got to be responsible with that. But I'm more concerned about the question, what did you do with all of those people I gave you? Hmm. As, as, as each one has received a special gift, First Peter 4.10, a charismata, a manifestation of grace, hmm. As each one has received, each one of us, a manifestation of grace, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so I say to my elders, you know, the stewardship sermon shouldn't be about money first. Right. right. It should be about what are we doing with that human capital mm. that we have in our midst. That's a big deal. So. You know, we're talking about elders, and not everybody's going to be an elder. You don't need everybody to be an elder. And that's one of the issues every church has to decide. How many elders do we need? Do we need three? Do we need 11? Do we need 20? 60? I don't know. I can't imagine that. <laughs> um, so, uh, but those are some of the issues I think that need to be looked at. Well, then let's ask the question how long should somebody be an elder? Like once an elder, yeah. always an that's elder? A good question. Or. You know, you have a term, you rotate off. How does that work? Or well, in our case, you know, the congregation doesn't vote for elders. Okay. They they affirm elders. We we base that on the scripture that says that these individuals have been appointed, appointed. to the church. Okay. So we have to confirm their appointment. So what we do when when someone when when elders have decided, okay, this individual qualifies, uh, we'd like to bring him on. Then we go to the congregation. And we say, we put his picture in the worship guide and put his picture up on the screen, and we say, in case you don't know who this is, uh, we want we are unanimously presenting this individual for you, for elder. You have a three-week time period. If there's any reason why you question this decision, um, if there's anything you know about this person that we need to know, um, our, 
our request is that first you go to him one-on-one um, and talk about it. And uh, and then you know you can come to us and and let us know. But so then at the end of three weeks, and they're then they're confirmed and they come on the elder board. So again, even though the congregation isn't voting, there's a sense of consensus, yeah, absolutely and blessing. It's called the consent of the governed. Okay, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's a kind of an important principle there. But yeah, so that's how we would would do that process. Gary, one of the unfortunate realities uh, of working at the seminary and working particularly at the Hendricks Center is that we frequently will get phone calls which are kind of like help calls, SOS yeah, calls yeah. from particularly pastors, graduates, um, and they're in a church and they're sideways with their elders and you start to look into the situation and you discover a lot of toxicity yep. in that. Yep. Elder board that's been there, frankly, often for generations or or close to it. I'm thinking of of churches where a handful of families have kind of run that church for a while, and they've kind of set up how this is going to go, and then they hire somebody as their pastor to kind of do their bidding, and but they they keep that person under their thumb, which for a recent seminary graduate who you know may have some school debt to pay off and so forth, that, that's a tough place to be when your livelihood is under the thumb of some people that hired you. And when you came into candidate, they were all smiles and, oh, this is oh, going to yeah. be great. Yeah. And then you get there and you start to find all kinds of problems. Beware of the person who greets you at the airport, right? Yeah. We, we, um, we do a lot, I think, to intervene for uh, the vocational Christian workers, the pastors, the church leaders uh, at the Hendricks Center. Um, what 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 do we do for elder boards and the training of elder boards and the the uh, the health of elder boards? What what can the church do for that? Well, first of all, I think you, in the situation you bring up, I think it's just as easy. You can find as many um, violations on the elder side as you can on the pastor side. Right. But I think you'll find those situations. Both sides are, are at are fault many times in, yeah. in what's happened in a bad situation. But I think one of the things that I would – and I try to explain this to my younger staff members, uh, and I try to explain it when I'm talking to a young pastor, but uh, there's a huge – I think there's a, f- a pretty sig- significant gulf between the way a pastor is viewing the church and, and the way an elder is viewing the church for a real simple reason. Your elders – did not choose to go to seminary. Right. Your, your elders decided that they would impact the world in a different kind of a way. So, so they don't sit around thinking about the church 24-7. Right. This is what oftentimes your young pastors don't understand. Hmm. Young pastors, they come out thinking, oh, I'm going to have elders that are mature and they're wise and they're gonna, this is going to be awesome. And they get out there. And this actually happened to me here in Dallas. You know, one of the first weeks I came to a Bible church. I hadn't pastored a Bible church before. I had Baptist, pastored a Baptist church. I'd pastored a, a formerly evangelical Methodist church that went non-denominational, and now I'm at a Bible church. So I'm thinking, well, these people are going to be pretty 
up on the Bible. Bible means Bible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was so shocked one of the first weeks. One, I was told, you know, hey, by the way, people out there, you're mentioning the scriptures, they don't have Bibles, which was a surprise to me. I thought, that's okay. <laughs> in a Bible church. <laughs> I didn't know that a Bible church, you didn't have Bibles. <laughs> and then between services, I'll never forget this, uh, one of the elders who was giving announcements that day, um, he had heard my first message. It was something to do with Paul and Timothy. In the second message, we're sitting there, and before he gets up, you know, we're having our music or whatever, he turns to me, he says, hey, let me ask you a question. He says, now, was Timothy really Paul's son? <laughs> I mean, he, right. he thought... He, this he, is an elder you're talking this about. This is an elder right? who didn't know that Timothy was not Paul's biological son. And so I think a lot of pastors experience that. They get out there and find out, wow, these guys, how come they don't... Well, they didn't go to seminary. And sometimes I'll tell a young pastor, you better lighten up. First of all, you better love these guys because they don't have to do – you're getting paid to do what you do. They're doing it for volunteer. And they're putting in hours, and they don't have to do this. The other thing I want you to remember is that guy on your board who's a veterinarian, all week long, he's just looking at the insides of a dog. <laughs> you know, he's he's not thinking about, you know, right. what are the statistics on how churches, you know, reach right. out and right. – He's just not thinking about it. So you have to be gracious. You have to build relationships well. You have to love these guys well. Many times you have to defer to these guys because some of them, oftentimes they're older and smarter than you in certain certain areas. So it, it's I think it's just about building a good relationship. And but uh, yes, yeah, and clearly some situations are so toxic. Um, I've. I've been in, they'll, I get calls sometimes. Someone say, "Hey, can you help?" This is what's happening, and you know, every once in a while, I'll say, "You know, I, you just need to get out of there because it's mean, just a broke it's just, situation. It's, a, it's broken, and particularly, like you say, if there's a either a founding family or a group of people, and this is the what's happened is they've just hired a chaplain. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't hire a pastor." They they just wanted somebody to come in and hatch and them, match them, and dispatch them. I mean that's that's all that's all you're supposed. That's your there's your job like description. It. Just hatch them, match them, and dispatch them, and we'll be happy. And and here's what they'll say. And I and there's some truth to this. They'll they'll and they may not say it verbally, but but their thought is, we were here when you got here. We'll be here when you leave. Right. And frankly, most of the time they're right that's, about that's that. That's true, right? Because pastors are staying what an average of eight years. So you know you can understand why these people it takes them a little while to to trust because they know that this guy's just an interim. But it sounds to me that that raises an issue of the pastor's role. That if 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 a pastor statistically speaking knows, yeah, I'm probably here for eight or ten years. I mean, realistically, That's right? Then a significant part of my job needs to be to build into the lives of these elders, to build not only Christ likeness into them, but to help them think through and prayerfully think through what has God called this church to. Yeah. I guess what I'm suggesting, in a sense, is that the is that the the we talk about the vision of a church. That the that the elders would be the custodians of the vision of the church because they and their That's families correct. are going to be there long term. That's correct. And then they hire a pastor 
to help them accomplish that vision. It's not like the pastor doesn't come with some visionary thoughts. But that's a very different model from what I've seen too often, which is we hire a pastor, the pastor comes in, he's got a big vision. And it almost always involves a building campaign. <laughs> so here's a building. Or his own success. <laughs> or his own or both. And, you know, having done that, you know, for some reason he then moves on. Right. And another guy comes, and now he's got a vision. So we build another building, and I could take you to campus, and you know, and show you the different buildings. And there's no unity of even the layout of the of the church campus for that reason. It 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 looks like a hodgepodge of buildings. And also in the history of that church, there wasn't a a continuity, I guess you'd say, of the elders over time. And their their commitment to a unified vision over yeah, time, yeah. over over decades. Yeah. Well, part of that bill is we're, we're victims of the system we've created. Right. I mean, we 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 we. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, just on its face, it's it's pretty silly. We, you know, we have a church. This is the the body of Christ. This is you know, the most important entity on the planet. And yet we go out and get some total stranger who has a diploma, <laughs> right? And we say, "You come and be our leader." Mm. Uh, Doesn't make sense. It it really so. I do think, for example, my successor, he's been at that church longer than I have because mm. he was a businessman. All right. When I got there, he'd already been there five or six years. So that sounds like a real advantage. So he's homegrown. Yeah, that's right. So so he's homegrown. He's known. He knows the, the he, values. I mean, he's, the, he knows the vision. He's, right. he's been through the various layers, variations of mm -hmm. the vision. And, right. And so um, so that's I think that's why he was chosen, as opposed to bringing in someone that doesn't know the city, doesn't know the congregation, doesn't. Mm -hmm. How long is that going to take? Right. Well, five to seven years is what I would suggest before you'll even be respected enough uh, to be listened to. You know, mm -hmm. every every I mean, for when I came here, you know, I really think it took five to seven years before people looked at me. You as, were one of them. Yeah, because at first you're the new guy, right. and you're the new guy for several years. All right. <laughs> Particularly if the guy before you was there 25 years. Yes. You're the new guy. So uh, it takes it takes patience. It takes um, some painful experiences, um, but you're going to have to shape the culture. You know, managers manage culture, leaders build culture, build culture, and and the culture is simply a sum total of shared experience. So, hmm. with every funeral, with every wedding, with every hospital call, you know, you're becoming the the, the pastor. But you but you also have to be careful with that and not become. You know, so important that the church can't get along without you. You always have to be, you know, be prepared that I'm. I've got to prepare this place for the next person because every pastor is an interim pastor. So, in a way, from the very beginning, you're already thinking about succession. Right. Right. Hmm. Oh yeah, I think, and every elder board needs to have a succession plan. They need to be thinking about that. An emergency succession plan. What what happens if, if the plane goes? You know, right, the, old, the guy drops dead. Yeah. The truck story, or whatever you know, what you know, there needs to be something in place. Who's who's going to lead, and and how are we going to do? It? I've been very blessed here. I, I'm telling you, I, I got the best group of elders in the world um, because they're not just guys that lead the church. They're friends. They mm. they watch for my soul. They'll you know, I can go ask them anything. They'll ask me stuff, that personal things, and. Uh, 
it's I'm just blessed to have individuals like they're mature, um, they're not intimidated. You can talk to them about anything, and so. Well, Gary, that's why we had you here today because you have had that positive experience, and uh, we wanted somebody who could speak uh, from a positive experience about the the role of pastors and elders together. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's great. You're welcome. Good to be here. And I want to thank you for joining us on the Table Podcast today, where we uh, deal with issues of God and culture. Please visit our website for the table at the Hendricks Center, and you'll find many other topics uh, related to God and culture. For the Hendricks Center, I'm Bill Hendricks. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.